Can't do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> All right. Welcome. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Daniel. I'm Carrie. I'm Patrick. And welcome to the 1958 Oscars. This is the podcast, If I Ran the Oscars, where we take a look at one random film from each year the Oscars were presented on TV. Well, one Oscar-winning film. One Oscar-winning film that won an award. Correct. And we take a look at what it won for, as well as three other random categories, to get a wide range of appreciation of film. That's right. And throw in a little randomness in our life, because we like that. I yeah. uh, This year, I was kind of a... It wasn't quite the 50-50 that we'll get to in a couple episodes, <laughs> but there was a pretty good chance we were going to watch Bridge on the River Kwai, and boy, did we. Mm-hmm. We watched the whole thing. We watched the whole thing. It's not a short movie. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, this one is going to be another episode where we don't talk much about the plot because it is a movie worth seeing. Yeah. However, there is a lot we can talk about about this movie. I saw this movie when I was, let's say, younger. Yeah. This one is in the National Film Registry. I did not see it when it first came out, people. I'm not mm-hmm. that old. Uh, this is the, according to the British oh. Film Institute, this is the 11th greatest British film of the 20th century. Wow. I don't know what 1 through 10 are. Bridget Jones' Diary. Let's <laughs> see what I can do. The top 100 films. Uh, you number mean the one, AFI? No, from the BFI. Oh, okay, BFI. The Third Man, 1949. Mm-hmm. Brief Encounter. Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yeah. 39 yeah. Steps. Great Expectations. Oh, yeah. Kind Hearts and Coronets. Kess, Don't Look Now, The Red Shoes, Train Spotting, and then number 11, Bridge on the River Quay. Hmm. hmm. You don't, we don't hmm. recognize all of these because... Because we're not British. We're, but, like, Chariots of Fire is on the list. Spoiler alert, we're Four not Weddings British. and a Funeral, The Full Monty, Dr. Zhivago, Monty Python's Life of Brian, number 28. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Gandhi, number 34. Like, it's a good list. Oh, Dr. No made it to number 41. Well, fabulous. Okay. All right. Uh, this one. Do we, let's talk about cast first. Well, what did it win? What What is the category that it won that we're supposed well, to be talking? We get about? to that. We usually get to that after we talk about who's in the film and what was the film about. Okay, I couldn't remember from last time. All right. <laughs> Give me a break. I'm right. old. So, uh, the American lead, but not the lead in the film, is William Holden. William Holden. Uh, someone that is important to pay attention to because. He He's was been around. He, well, he was not the only member, not the only person in this film who served in World War II. Okay. He served in the FMPU. FM Police Unit. Nah, no, no, no. No. First Motion Picture Unit. What? There was no. There wasn't such a thing. Later, eighteenth AAF Base Unit was the primary film production unit of the U.S. Army Air Forces during World War II. It was the first military unit made up entirely of professionals from the film industry. It produced more than 400 propaganda and training films, which were notable for being informative as well as entertaining. Veteran actors such as Clark Gable, William Holden, Clayton Moore, DeForest Kelly, and Ronald Reagan served with the FMPU. Okay. Once wow. again, people, <laughs> I am sitting here gaping. They were nicknamed I... the Celluloid Commandos. <laughs> <laughs> nice, 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 nice. Uh, yep. That there's okay. Really good. That's a good factoid. That's good. combat cameraman training. Yeah, we can go into a no real big digression there. But yeah, he served during World War II as part of that group. Uh, he is known mostly for being winning Best Actor for Stalag Seventeen in mm-hmm. 1953, and he got a primetime Emmy for the television film 
The Blue Knight in 1973. Huh. Uh, he's also known for being in Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina, The Wild Bunch, Picnic, and Network. Yeah. He's a somewhat familiar face. Yep. Uh, he's He's been around. He's not like, you know, you see his face and go, oh, that guy. Mm-hmm. Like the next person we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. You mean Obi-Wan? We're going to talk about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Sir Alec Guinness, and he is Sir Alec Guinness. He was not at the time. At the of time, he was not. You give him two years, though. He had to win this Oscar first. He had to win the Oscar first. He has won an Academy Award, a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, and a Tony. We say good he, show. He, old he, chap. he won the BAFTA for this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, didn't he win an Oscar for this movie? He also won the Oscar for this movie. I. Mm-hmm. He won the Academy Honorary Award for Lifetime Achievement in 1980. And the BAFTA Academy Fellowship Award in 1989. Wow. He is in nine of the BFI's 100 Greatest British Films of the 20th Century. 10%. Yep. Just about 10%. Five of them were directed by the guy that directed this. They had a partnership. They yes. Can, this, they knew what worked. During the Second World War, he was a temporary lieutenant and commanded a landing craft at the Allied invasion of Sicily. Or, would, or do they call it Lieutenant in Britain? Mm-hmm. Uh, during the war, he was granted leave to appear in the Broadway production of Flare Path about RAF Bomber Command. Hmm. Huh. Uh, his film career started... He, in particular, uh, he is was initially associated with the Ealing comedies, which I don't recognize, but he played nine characters in Kind Hearts and Coronets. Hmm. Uh, and then in, of course, this film, which... Kinda was a big deal. It was it was what you would call a blockbuster. Yep. I uh, and then they made with, lots of money working with David Lean or Lean L E A N Lean Lean. Uh, he was in Great Expectations mm-hmm. with his director Oliver Twist, Bridge on the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia, Doctor Zhivago, A Passage to India. Offered a role in Ryan's Daughter, but declined. Wow. Well, you know what? Mr. Guinness is an awfully busy yeah. man. And then, 1977, he was in Star Wars. I was there. So you that. were there. We've talked about that before. <laughs> he negotiated a deal for 2.25% of the gross royalties paid to the director. Wow. Which meant Star Wars made him very wealthy. <laughs> wow. Good for uh, him. Good course, managing. Good managing. Af- That's what I said. Afterwards, he was upset that he, basically he got known for only being in Star Wars. Because he wanted to be known as a serious actor. Yeah. He was a very good actor, but unfortunate that he didn't like well, it. Well, that was... No, the internet does things to you. Yeah. Just show up at Comic-Con but and be happy. The guy's done good. Yes. He's a quality actor. Yep. And yes, all the kids think he's Obi-Wan. Okay, we're done. <laughs> uh, the supporting actor in this one would be Sasue Hayakawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, known pro- that's his professional name. His first name is... Actually, Kintaro, one of the biggest stars during the silent film era of the 10s and 20s, was the first actor of Asian descent to achieve stardom as a leading man in the U.S. and Europe. His broodingly handsome good looks and typecasting as a sexually dominant villain made him a heartthrob among American women during a time of racial discrimination. That is... Look at this guy. It's, yeah, brooding good looks. Oh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, the quote I saw when I was... Yeah, Dan was I, totally distracted during the movie. We have to t- be honest. There was Dan is sitting here on the couch. He's got his rectangle on well, full I, speed, well, lots of tabs open. I have to prepare. 
I know. Yeah. You're just funny. There's a quote from a celebrity photographer, early 1900s Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. White women were willing to give themselves to a Japanese man. When Sasue was getting out of his limousine in front of a theater of a premiere showing, he grimaced a little because there was a puddle. Then, dozens of female fans surrounding his car fell over one another to spread their fur coats at his feet. I, I, have, no, I have no comeback for that. <laughs> no yeah. comeback. The only thing I can think about is the scene in uh, uh, Shakespeare in Love where the queen is getting out of her carriage and there's a big puddle and there's all these gentlemen that are supposed to be her loyal royal subjects and um, they go to throw down their capes but they're and Judy Dench says too late too late as she hikes up her skirts and yep. heads through the puddle uh, so his first major film was a silent film 1915 called the cheat and that's basically what catapulted him into yeah. everyone like him because essentially the description but, of it is unfortunately a little because uh, uh, it's the idea of the forced sexual encounter fantasy. Mom says no. Forbidden this is a family fruit. Program. All those taboos of race and sex. It made him a movie star. His most rabid fan base was white women. That can be a rabid fan base. Yeah. Not that we're being racist or anything, people. Three, them white of his, women. three of his films are in the National Film Register. Hmm. The Cheat, a film called The Dragon Painter, and Bridge on the River Quest. Wow. So he's done some stuff. But his his bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago, so he's not a schlump, was in political science. Mm-hmm. And he just took his brooding good looks to the bank. Yep. Well, good for him. It worked. Worked for him. Then I looked up Jack Hawkins, who is the British commander mm-hmm. at the end. Right. But wait a minute. What about stuff. introducing Joffrey Horn? Joffrey Horn? I looked him up. He's not done a whole lot. Like... It was Bridge on the River Kwai and then really nothing? I mean, he's... He did other he, work. He, he's been in things, but honestly, it's not like this is the breakout movie for... For him and his career. Well, well, it was the breakout movie for his career, but it's not the breakout movie of... In an incredible career. It's the breakout movie for this guy. Hmm. Oh, well. But it's a little unfortunate. Yeah. I He was in an episode of The Outer Limits, in an episode of uh, Twilight Zone. Well, he's he continued to do some yeah. work. But but what about those supporting actresses? Oh, we aren't getting to that yet. We still oh, have... <laughs> Dan won't let no, us No, no, no. We have to get to, first, the adapted screenplay, because this... Is very important. Okay. I don't know why. It was based on a play by some guy named Pierre. It was. I, I remember that from the opening credits. And you will note that he won the Academy Award, despite not writing the movie. Wait a minute. Well, how did that happen? Did he write under a pen name? The screenwriters, Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, were on the Hollywood blacklist. Oh. Because now Wilson we get to talk and about... And who were the Now we're talking names? about communism. We're talking about communism. It was Wilson and who? Wilson and Foreman. They, oh, were, not okay. in, they were not part of the Hollywood 10. Okay. Which, this is something Ooh. I definitely had to pre-look up, because I wanted to make sure I could talk intelligently about this slightly, and know where to skip in the Wikipedia okay. article. Okay, this is... The Hollywood blacklist was the colloquial term for what was in actuality a broader entertainment industry blacklist, put in effect in the mid-20th century during the early years of the Cold War. While the practice of denying employment to entertainment industry professionals believed to be or to have been communist 
sympathizers. Not just communists or sympathizers with it. Not just actors, but screenwriters, directors, musicians, and other entertainment professionals were barred from work by the studios. That doesn't happen nowadays. Usually done on the basis of their membership, alleged membership in, or even just sympathy with the Communist Party, or on the basis of their refusal to assist congressional investigations into the party's activities. Because this was the big commie scare. This was it. The first blacklist was ten writers and directors cited for contempt of Congress for refusing to testify before the House Mm -hmm. Un-American Activities Committee Uh in Uh November 1947. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you want to learn more about this, go watch the movie Trumbo, which is all about it. Trumbo is important, and and I will end the discussion of the blacklist with him. I, 1950, a pamphlet entitled Red Channels was published identifying 151 industry professionals in the context of red fascists and their sympathizers. Yikes. Soon most of them were barred from employment. Yikes. Were they fascists or communists? Well, they're they're the same thing, Dad. They're all bad. No. They are no, the same they, thing. No, they're That's not. the point. They're not. <laughs> the blacklist lasted until 1960 when Dalton Trumbo, a Communist Party member for five years and member of the Hollywood Ten, was credited as the screenwriter of the highly successful film Exodus and publicly acknowledged by actor Kirk Douglas for writing the screenplay for the movie Spartacus. Wow. He is retroactively given multiple Academy Awards. Huh. As are Carl Foreman and Michael Wilson, posthumously. Hmm. The official credit was given to Pierre Boulle, and in 1984 the Academy retroactively awarded it to Foreman and Wilson. Subsequent releases after the first... Give them proper screen credit. Yeah, wow. too late, too late. Very yep. interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So that's an important part there. Uh, the film was relatively faithful to the novel, not a play, novel, with two major okay. exceptions. Uh, Shears in the book is a British commando officer. Okay. So they had to make not that, just they, some they lackey spice that American. Up. And in the novel, uh, the ending is different. Not glib. Well, like this one. Well, not just that. There is not as big of an explosion. Oh, okay. I Bull enjoyed the film version, but he disagreed with the ending. Well, of course, because he's a writer and he likes his ending. Yep. So this, he didn't write a choose-your-own-ending book. Yeah. So on the subject of screenwriting, because we'll get to the other things I want to talk about later. <laughs> on the on the screenplay, mm-hmm. what do you think? You know, it's hard for me to know if a screenplay is really a good piece of work well, because I, you don't have the original work to compare with it. Well, on this one, like... But I just think that, you know, as opposed... Uh, well, you can, like, tell about, like, crappy <laughs> writing or something. Well, it, it wasn't crappy writing. I, I mean, think it was that pretty it was good writing. writing. In, in quite a few uh, areas in different characters. I did like I the fact that there well was, the you know, the telephone tag from the... Uh, Japanese commander to his subordinate to his subordinate to his subordinate yeah. to his subordinate <laughs> out through the camp. Yeah. I love to get that. Tea. To get tea. <laughs> and I do think that like it it seemed very well written. Like everything like, yeah. there weren't periods there was really no point when they were doing something that wasn't terribly necessary. Correct. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. sometimes you get that. I don't remember where I was listening to it, but people were talking about the movie They Live, which Whatever is a movie that mom would not appreciate because it's about aliens. You know, it's about aliens having living among us and if you wear the special sunglasses then you can see them and it's starring Rowdy Roddy Piper from the WWE 
It's the movie where so, where somebody first says the line, "I'm here to kick ass and chew bubble gum, and I'm all out of gum." You made that line. That's just in. dumb. No, there's a there's a period in that movie where there's a 15 minute fist fight. Uh, I mean, it's like <laughs> it's it's like writing like "Come with me if you want to live" kind of a thing. Yeah, oh it, it was not that yeah. kind of writing. It's definitely so an example of. The movie does what it needs to do and it doesn't do more. And and they didn't oversell it. They didn't tell us what we should be believing and thinking and mm-hmm. feeling. And I appreciate yeah. that. Things things were very clear. Uh, on the subject of how realistic it was written, the novel itself and the screenplay, almost entirely fictional. Though not entirely. The conditions in real life, far worse than the movie. Of course. Almost obviously. Oh, yeah. Of course. The actual, because there was actually a bridge constructed by British prisoners of war mm-hmm. over the River Kwai. The actual Lieutenant Colonel Philip Tusi guy, very different from Nicholson, did as much as possible to delay the building of the bridge. Well, of course. In the movie, spoilers, not so much delaying going on. Right. Uh, he would collect termites and mix the concrete badly. Some consider the film an insulting parody of him. Oh well. If also, you, if you a, knew the man, then yeah. it, then it would mm-hmm. be. I I'd imagine. I need to scroll a little bit because there was something else. Ah, oh, yes, a sergeant major Saito was in real life second in command at the camp. Hmm. In the film, he is in charge of the camp. Mm-hmm. In reality, Saito was respected by his prisoners for being comparatively merciful and fair towards them. And Tusi later defended him in his war crimes trial, and they became friends. I love that about. Huh. I. It can happen. The major railway bridge described in the novel and film didn't cross the river known at the time as the Kwai. In 1943, a bridge was built over the Mai Klong River, renamed Kwai Yai, in the 1960s as a result of the film. Sure. Hmm. More tourism. Yeah. Yep. And the bridge itself... He's scrolling now. Wait for it. It's like this. You can't see it on the podcast. It looks like a, a steel railroad bridge. Yep. The arch se- there's two arch sections original constructed by Japan during World War II. The sections in the middle were built by Japan after the war as war reparation because hmm. the Allies blew it up. Because the Allies blew it up. Yep. They're like that. So script not necessarily historically accurate, but nevertheless entertaining. I, mm-hmm. I think from a film standpoint, yes. Yep. First extra category: best actor. Well, this, this, will not su- this will not surprise you that it's Alec Guinness, and boy, did he win. Yeah. He did. I... Although I, the, the, his very last scene... Uh, yeah, uh, the ending of this movie may have left a little to be desired. No wonder the, the writer was disappointed with the ending, because I was. Yep. There was one scene in particular I asked you to pay attention to when mm. he's getting out of the solitary, oven. the mm. oven. Guinness said he subconsciously based that scene on his 11-year-old son, Matthew who was recovering from polio at the time. Oh, wow. Guinness later reflected, calling it the finest piece of work he had ever done. Hmm. Wow. He, well, I think he looked completely drained. Yeah. He did a very good job of looking done, completely done. Dehydrated. But too proud to stop. Correct. Right. Correct. They did a really good job costuming him. Mm-hmm. Because Makeup. he looked emaciated. Except for, except for his boots. Mom complained about the boots. The boots. Well, <laughs> yeah, but, but even so. I mean, I mean, his clothes hung on him. Dirty, mm-hmm. filthy, like baggy mm-hmm. kind of thing. So they made him look really emaciated. Right, and I think right. that was that Yeah, was I didn't like to... the boots clicking as they walked on the new bridge. Yeah. 
And the bridge was also too clean for me. But that's... Yeah. I just have to let that go. It's all nice fresh wood. They just cut it. They, from the sawmill. Yep. Yeah. Uh, next category. We randomly selected Best Supporting Actress. Now, as a movie about World War II war prisoners, it will not surprise you that there are very few female characters in this film. In fact, there is one person who has speaking roles that are more than, like, one word. Right. So, I suppose there's absolutely no way this was winning for that. There was there was one woman that got whistled at. That was disturbing. That was was the woman with more than one line, because she was in multiple scenes. But that's our, you know, our modern sensibilities being disgusted with that kind of behavior from men. Right. But... So yeah, she was one, in there for her yeah. her uh, bleached blondness and swimsuit yeah. attire. Yeah, so for this category, it was randomly chosen. Very yeah. little to discuss here. Right, fault in the system, but whatever. No, that's this is why this, we that's like okay. the. This is why yeah. we like the randomness. Uh, last one, best special effects, and I boy am I glad that we rolled this one. Step one: interesting facts about the special effects award, because this is the first time it's come up. And nowadays, the special effects award is a kind of a big deal because of how advanced computer CGI has gotten. Mm-hmm. The first time it was awarded was 1938 as a special award. After okay. that, it, there it was a merit award. Okay. From 1939 to 1946, 45. There were five films nominated each year. Okay. Generally, there were. It was you were nominated as two teams, okay. the photo team and the sound team. Okay. Starting nineteen forty six, two maybe three films were nominated each year. Some years only one, and then it was a special award. Sure, not enough competition. This year there were two films nominated: The Enemy Below and The Spirit of St. Louis. Okay. This film was not nominated last year. The the year the year before. The Ten Commandments won, obviously. Yeah. But there were only two films nominated this year. And this was not nominated. They didn't think that blowing up the bridge was good also, enough. Also, The Enemy Below won the award for audible effects. It was not cited for its good visuals. Hmm. Now, the reason why this is important is... And this, we do kind of have to veer a little bit into spoiler territory, though. It's not a very big one. Right. It's a bridge. It's gonna blow up. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the whole yes. point of the film. They did not blow up a model. They blew up a real bridge? The filming of the bridge explosion was to be done on the 10th of March, 1957, in the presence of the prime minister of the country they were filming in, and a team of government dignitaries. However, one of the cameramen was unable to get out of the way of the explosion in time, and they had to stop filming. The train crashed into a generator on the other side of the bridge on it and blew it up. Holy moly. Mm. The producers nearly suffered a catastrophe following the filming of the bridge explosion. To ensure they captured it, multiple cameras from several angles were used, which we noted. Yeah. Ordinarily, the film would have been taken by boat to London, but due to the Suez Crisis, Uh. this was impossible, so it was taken by air freight. When the shipment failed to arrive in London, a worldwide search was undertaken. They found him on the airport tarmac in Cairo. It had not been exposed to sunlight. The heat-sensitive color film stock should have been hopelessly ruined. However, when processed, the shots were perfect and appeared in the film. Wow. So. That's why. The entire film does not have good special effects. The 
there is one very, very, very good Xena special effect. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that the but Academy was looking for a movie which contained good special effects throughout, and mm -hmm. one shot was not great. However, even by modern standards, mm -hmm. the attention to realism of actually blowing something up, this is the kind of thing that Titanic won awards for. Correct. Mm -hmm. Because right, Titanic right. had, yeah. like, a one... Well, they had, like, a one-half-scale model that right. they sunk twice. Mm -hmm. They built right, right. a full-size side of the Titanic. Mm -hmm. When right, it's right. crashing into the iceberg, there's ac they're actually throwing ice chunks on the actors. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Right. Uh, the new Star Wars films, they have more uh, puppets and animatronics than mm -hmm. just CGI like they did in Episodes 1 through 3. Things right. like that, right. where people are coming back around to, if you can do it practically, do it practically. Because, because it's going to shoot better. Well, it's more believable that way. Uh, mm -hmm. Somebody said something about that with the new Mandalorian TV show, which I still think moms should watch. Mm -hmm. Right, but, I have to stay home then. Yes, you do have <laughs> to stay home. But with that one, they have their baby Yoda, mm -hmm. and they have it. Be, they, it's a puppet. Because one, that's the way Yoda was in the first place. Mm -hmm. Two, if you look at something on the screen and it's too realistic, you mm -hmm. go... Something's up. But if you look at it and go, oh, well, that's obviously a puppet, mm -hmm. you're okay with that. You're like, oh, and then the puppet is it's moving not, around. You're and not trying to fool yourself. You're not trying to fool yourself. Which made that more difficult on the scenes where he had to be CG because they couldn't film a puppet. So they had to make the CG model move like a puppet. Sure, sure. But it's all that where the realism and actually putting doing it in the camera mm -hmm. is so important and something that a lot of filmmakers use as a crutch of well, I mean, we could film this. We'll just fix it in post. Yeah, we'll fix it in post. This is a big deal. It's one of the reasons why stuntmen continue to have jobs is right. because, well, we could not put our actors at risk and just fake it in post. And sometimes mm -hmm. you have to do that right, because right, right. stunts are crazy. Mm -hmm. right. Or you film someone falling off of a roof and then they break their leg and then they don't film for the rest of the day. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I think that this was a, a film that is definitely worth watching. Definitely. and I think so because of just the history yeah. of film and and the, I think the, the, the locations sometimes were just really interesting and oh, gorgeous yeah. and film also and won, Film also won for cinematography though we're not talking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it won like seven awards, didn't it? Did. it? I and because it's going to be important to Dad, the whistling. The whistling. The whistling is actually a march. Mm -hmm. Right. It was not invented for this film. Right. No, it it's is the, the something Colonel Bogey. Colonel Bogey march. I. It's not a Susan march. I don't believe. Uh, a former prisoner of the Japanese who worked on the Burma railway was asked, "Did it, anyone whistle this as they did in the film?" He said, "I never heard it in Thailand." We hadn't much breath left for whistling. But in Bangkok, I was told that David Lean, the film's director, became mad at the extras. He was one of the extras, this veteran. Okay. He was mad at the extras because they couldn't march in time. <laughs> and he yelled, for God's sake, whistle a march to keep time to. And one of them started whistling Colonel Bogey. Huh. How about that? And then after that, they had to be, basically the composition for the film in certain points had to blend into the march. Sure. So, yeah. Interesting. I uh, got an Academy Award for the music. Okay. He was given 10 days to write 45 minutes worth of music. He describes the music as the worst job I've ever had in my life. Because he was so pressured? And he got an Oscar and a Grammy. 
Some, well, what's your phrase about restriction breeds creativity? Yep, when you have as, too much restriction and you can't do anything, but limiting the scope of what you are allowed to think about mm-hmm. either means you focus in on the correct answer or you find creative solutions that get you there. Right, right. And I guess that worked for him, but yeah, no, very good movie, not... A whole lot. You gotta go find the thing to read. And they did a pretty good job of making money on this movie, according to the records that oh. I saw. And and it was re-released and made more money yeah. afterwards. I mean, the the records uh, that I saw, which I didn't study it all that much, was you know nine or ten times budget. Well, it so was the number one grossing well. film of the year. They did pretty well. Do you have your thing to read? I I don't yet. Just hang on. Sometimes so, mom is just not as fast as you. The Colonel Bogey March. I was looking that up. Yep, and He's we will not. We will not to whistle see who it. Wrote it, Kenneth Alford. Yeah. See, I I didn't think my dad and I had recently talked about yeah. the Colonel Bogey March. That's why I knew I was hoping I was correct that yep. it was not a John. That Fox was his pen name, Frederick Alford? Joseph Ricketts. Well, Alfred sounds more American, Marcus, yep. but or English Alford. or whatever it is. All right. Is he a British hmm. man? He's a British bandmaster in the British Army. Yep. There we go. Royal Marines director. All right. So this is it for this week. Mm-hmm. We want to thank the Academy for doing its job and thereby pointing us in the direction of quality filmmaking. All right. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. Thanks for taking us out.